This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. My apologies for being gone away for so long. I have another recent interview I'm editing and other great interviews circling the runway, so my hope is future waits won't be nearly as long. I'm enjoying slightly cooler weather as fall has been teasing us. Leaves are starting to fall, but the days are still pretty warm. Those warm days are definitely getting shorter, however. Plus, Bulbs for fall planting have started arriving at my doorstep. That has to mean autumn is upon us. I continue my one-man campaign to make October Russell Kirk month. I would point you to the first cultural debris interview with Bradley Berzer from last October, as well as my interview with Jared Zimmerer about Russell Kirk. Both make for fine Russell Kirk month listening. And don't forget to raise a toast to Dr. Kirk on Kirk Night, October 19th, and settle in with one of his ghostly stories, or find a fellow Kirkian with whom to enjoy the evening. As a celebration of Russell Kirk Month, I'm offering a copy of Dr. Kirk's collection of ghostly stories, Lord of the Hollow Dark, to a listener. There are two ways to win— Anyone who is a patron of the podcast at Patreon is eligible, so please consider supporting the podcast with any amount you feel comfortable with. Also, anyone who leaves a positive review of Cultural Debris on Apple Podcasts will have an entry. Submit your review on Apple Podcasts and then email me at culturaldebrispodcast at gmail.com so I'll know who you are. The giveaway will last until Halloween. I shouldn't fail to mention that Cultural Debris is one year old, so a big happy birthday to the podcast. I appreciate you, the listeners, for listening, and also appreciate the many extraordinary guests who have taken the time to talk with me. I look forward to the year ahead. One of my goals for the podcast is not to have a guest list that becomes too predictable, But I do want guests who always will be interesting. So far, I believe I've achieved that, at least with the guests. You may recall the saga earlier this year when I acquired a vintage Globe Wernicke, a barrister bookcase that needed a bit of work, but now stands behind me as I record this. Well, I'm happy to report that not only one, but two More barristers have entered the fold. A barrister with sliding rather than retractable doors was listed for sale locally at an irresistible price. When I went to take a look, the gentleman happened to have a second, larger barrister that had more traditional retractable doors, like the one from earlier, the Globe Wernicke. I felt it would be wrong to leave them behind. I'm in the process of cleaning them up now. Neither really requires any significant work, and they'll be holding books before you know it. Our poem is from Wendell Berry, and it's called October 10. Now constantly there's the sound, quieter than rain, of the leaves falling. Under their loosening bright gold, the sycamore limbs bleach whiter, Now the only flowers are bee-weed and aster, spray of their white and lavender over the brown leaves. The calling of a crow sounds loud, a landmark, now that the life of summer falls silent and the nights grow. My guest is author and bookman Stuart Kells of Melbourne, Australia. Stuart and I chat about various things bookish, private presses, pulp paperbacks, typefaces, university presses. We even talk about two of his books a bit, The Library, A Catalog of Wonders, 
and Shakespeare's Library, Unlocking the Greatest Mystery in Literature, both highly recommended. I do apologize for some of the audio issues that you may experience. Those are mostly with my audio. The meandering conversation with Stuart was a lot of fun for me, and I hope you enjoy it. You certainly don't want to miss the story about Stuart's mystery find that cost him $3, but changed his life and turned into the most valuable thing he owned. Stuart Kells, welcome to Cultural Debris. Thanks, Alan. Great to be here. You are talking to me not only from down under, but you are also talking to me from tomorrow. And I don't think I've ever talked to somebody from tomorrow before. It's very, very that, strange. Very strange. <laughs> it is strange. I'm I'm here uh, on a Saturday at the time of this recording, but you are already in in Sunday, and um, and I I hope I hope tomorrow is all that I hope it will be. Is, do you have a good report? Well, I can confirm that nothing extremely terrible has happened so far on Sunday. <laughs> that, that is good to know. <laughs> that is good to know. At least the day will start out well. Well, I, I very much appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk with us from, uh, from far away Melbourne. And uh, I'm, I'm very excited uh, to, uh, to chat with you today. It's, uh, it, this is the very first... Uh, interview for the podcast from anyone from uh, from Australia, so that's exciting for me, and uh, we we can we can check off another another part of the world for that. Great. So tell me how things are in Australia because we keep seeing news reports of horror stories of lockdowns and so forth. What what are those like for you, and sort of how how has that affected your day to day life? Well. It's a really good question. The, the media are definitely painting a pretty terrible picture um, with long lockdowns and riots and other things. Um, I, I would have to say that the, the daily experience of it for most people is very different. Um, in Melbourne and in Sydney, we have had long lockdowns, but the great majority of people have um, got into a reasonable lockdown rhythm and they're you know, complying with the health orders and doing their best uh, to get through. Um, for much of last year, we had pretty good uh, government support for key workers and industries, uh, and a lot of that's continued this year. So um, even though we've been locked down for a very long time, um, a lot of activities are still continuing, um, compliance is good, and, and the big dividend from all of that is that we haven't had anywhere near the number of deaths uh, from COVID that a lot of other countries have had. So we've never seen that um, moment that um, happened in Italy, for example, and in some other countries where the public health system was completely swamped. Um, we haven't had that here. So um, it's the, the, the flip side of having a lot of lockdowns is that the public health side of it's been, been very good. Um, and the vaccination rates are getting very high in Australia as well now. So um, we're moving towards uh, moving out of lockdown in the next month or so. Well, good. Well, I uh, I look forward for for your sake and and the others uh, in Australia that that you will be uh, be able to go about normal life uh, as soon as possible. And so, I w wish you all the the best. Like I said, you know, w it, it's hard for us so far away to get a to get an accurate um, an accurate idea of what of what things are really like. And so, it, so most most days, though, I guess you're you're at home. That's right. Yeah. And like most people, so critical industries are continuing and essential manufacturing and construction and a lot of other industries are continuing. But where people can work from home, they are. And um, that's that's working reasonably well. Most um, people have moved to homeschooling when they've got children. Now, that's been obviously very difficult for people living in apartments and small houses and uh, high density areas. But if you've got a bit of room around you and, and uh, a bit of a backyard and a local park, then um, uh, it hasn't been too too bad. 
So have you have you uh, used this time, this sort of extra time at home, to uh, to be working on a new book? Mm. Yes. Well, it's it's terrible to look for silver linings from COVID, <laughs> but yeah, it's been a very um, productive period uh, for, for people like me who who um, who are writing and researching and and um, interviewing. So I've I've done um, two books recently, written two books recently that are very intensive with interviews around the world. And because of COVID, everyone's much more relaxed and, and uh, competent on Zoom and Teams and, and um, all of those uh, platforms. So um, it's been incredibly efficient uh, to interview people around the world and to, to gather information and do research that way. Um, so yeah, the, the, the rate of, of book production here is is continuing. I, my, uh, my writing, I, I, I tend to um, focus on two parallel fields so I'm writing books about books um, because, like you, I'm, I'm a bit of a book maniac and a bibliophile, and um, also books about business and uh, institutions. So um, I'm working on a, a large history of an international law firm at the moment and about to move into a history of a, of a major publisher um, and have a few other projects on the go. Just finished a book around um, water markets um, and water trading so yeah, from that side of things, the writing side of things and the um, the research side of things, it's actually been uh, been pretty good. And um, in a really strange way, the um, the book market here, people thought that uh, a lot of aspects of retail and, and the book trade would really struggle through the lockdowns, but but the opposite in some ways has happened. And bookshops and publishers have had a fantastic year or two, partly because I think people have been <laughs> reading a lot. Um, and partly because people have uh, embraced their local bookshops uh, during the lockdown, uh, partly as a way to keep community connections going and partly as a way to you know, help bookshops get through a tough period. So um, it's actually been a very good time for, for authorship and, and book selling and book publishing. Well, and, and of course, that, t- that takes us well into our discussion of your book, the library, a catalog of wonders. So one of the things that, that you talk about in, in that book is sort of this fear early on of the this vast proliferation of books, that books are just going to sort of take over entire cities. Um, so and they, they didn't even know about, about lockdown book production. So it, uh, it, it may happen yet at, at this rate. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, there's all sorts of anxieties behind that around um, either there will be too many books or that the book will die. As you know, the the, the idea of the death of the book has been um, a, a common anxiety for a long time. And um, we saw, you know, 20, 10, 20 years ago, when ebooks were starting to really emerge and grow, there was a lot of anxiety that um, it would all soon be digital, be no uh, physical book production at all, and that the experience of reading and the experience of book ownership would be very different. And I think e- even people in publishing have been pretty surprised about what's happened in the last few years, that um, people have continued to buy physical books, and they've bought electronic and physical books of the same title. Um, one of the trends that I find really interesting is that um, the idea of having a private library uh, obviously goes back to the... Um, you know, at least to the 17th century. Um, and uh, it's it's always been something um, that uh, certain types of people aspired to, you know, the country house and, and um, the, the, the scholar in Europe, for example. But in America, it's not an uncommon thing to, to, if you've got a large sprawling house to have a library room or a private library. Whereas in Australia, that's um, quite unusual to have a, a home library or a dedicated room library. But that even that is starting to change and people are starting to think about um, you know, books in homes and living with books. People have always had books at home. I'm not saying that they didn't collect books or didn't keep books, but the idea of having a dedicated library space is something that's relatively unusual here. So, um, yeah, that's another emblem of how the physical book um, is, uh, I think, here to stay, which is which is great. Well, I, I really do think that the book as an object is is 
pretty much perfect technology, and and it appeals. I, I do think that the the tactile, physical nature of a book fits perfectly with with the I guess human nature, just that we like to hold something, we like the the feel of it, and there. Well, some people enjoy electronic books even maybe better, but I think as a whole. Most people don't, uh, to the degree that people mm. drift to electronic books, at least perhaps. And I have a biased reading on this, of course, but but then it's a convenience thing, travel or uh, maybe books that you don't necessarily want to dedicate the space to or something like that. But uh, I think for enjoyment reading, it seems to me that the physical book is is a hard thing to kill. Yes, definitely. There's a whole sort of literature, as you know, about the, the differences in the experience of reading a physical book versus reading on screen or on a tablet. Um, when, I, when I went into books, um, I, I started hunting books basically when I was in high school. Um, and for me, the attraction was partly the text, um, but those other things, you know, covers, paper, typography, design, um, provenance, all of those things were just as important for me um, in the experience of books and the attraction of books. So I've always been interested in those sort of other other features. It's it's not it's slightly kind of um, uncouth to say that you're interested in covers of books. <laughs> you're supposed to be interested in the middle, um, but uh, I've always been as interested in the bindings and in the cover design for, for sci-fi pulps or. Or early books that, that they're um, how how they're actually physically made, um, and I've always been interested in quirks of typography. I'm, I'm a bit of a font maniac, um, and very much interested in in provenance studies and those sorts of things. So, as much as anything, I was drawn into the world of books from that side of, of the physical book, as well as from um, a love of reading and an interest in the text. Right, I think that. That most bibliophiles once once uh, I mean obviously there's an appreciation for the text. Everybody has favorite books, books that they like to read, and and I think that for most collectors, that's at the heart of what they look for. But as you said, there's so much more that that goes into it. Uh, private press books, uh, mm-hmm. illustrated books. Uh, I mean, we talk about sort of pulp paperbacks. I've I like to um, kind of keep. I I don't actively search for them uh but i keep my eye open for sort of pulp paperbacks that were written by uh kind of famous authors but but don't look like they were yes. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> um, uh, you know especially somebody like william faulkner who's who's somebody i like and um and i don't really pursue faulkner first editions because that's uh that's an outlay that I just am not interested in making. It's sort of, I know that that, 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 that way lies madness. But if I come across a, like a Faulkner pulp uh, that, uh, that, as you, that doesn't look like it was by Faulkner at all, that, mm. you know, sort of this sort of lurid or semi-lurid covers and so forth. I, I, the juxtaposition of that amuses me, I guess. And, uh, and of course, the the attraction of those pulp covers, uh, you know, it's undeniable, and uh, it, they're hard to pass up. So you know, you can get you can get a little bit of a of a bibliophile hit for just a few dollars usually, and so yeah. that's a it's a nice a nice way to do it. But but I also then on the opposite end, I have have a great appreciation for private press books, and uh, some years ago did uh, did some uh, spent some time working. Uh, with a local private press and, you know, did some typesetting and so forth. So once you kind of see those things, they're hard to unsee. And then you get, you get uh, led down the path of of book Mm. bindings. And as you said, with fonts, I have a, I have an appreciation for uh, the the type design and illustrations of Eric Gill. And I'll always put in a little asterisk. I, I provide no endorsement of Eric Gill's yeah. personal life <laughs> yes. or choices, but, mm. but, uh, but his, his aesthetic, I have a great appreciation for and uh, his, his types and so forth. So uh, typefaces. So those are all things that, that pull you in and you have this physical object that you can hold that has all of these sort of streams of provenance, as you said, that come together. 
that's a really interesting point. And, and just quickly on the Faulkner, that you and I are both interested in uh, book Twitter and rare book Twitter. And there was a very good comment. I think it was by Re Rebecca Bowman, who's a, a rare books uh, person in the in the US. She said that um, the best Faulkner is Pulp Faulkner, <laughs> and uh, showed <laughs> some of those classic covers. And you mentioned that you can pick them up for a few dollars, and that's right. But it's that area of, of pulps and, and of classical works or classic works dressed up as pulps is a really interesting example of anomalies in the book world because you're right, you can buy them for a few dollars, but you can also buy them for a few hundreds, hundreds of dollars um, if um, people appreciate their values and um, you know, if, if a, a savvy book dealer has found them. So like some of those early ace paperbacks of William Burroughs and Philip K. Dick and those sorts of things, you can still find them for a few dollars, but you can also find them for hundreds of dollars in, in rare book catalogues. Um, in terms of the private press movement, I think that's a really interesting point. And you and I touched early on in our prior conversation around how um, the Australian book world is, is similar to but differs from the American book world. Um, we have very good um, local publishers here, but with the private press movement and the fine printing movement has never really taken off in Australia. So I, I'm a little bit clued into the American uh, fine printing world. There was a chap in Australia called John Gartner, who was a real bibliophile and a collector of American fine printed books and ephemera. And I ended up buying a lot of his um, books and a lot of his ephemera. So in my own library, I have a large collection of American uh, fine printing and private press books. Um, but that's extremely rare in Australia, first of all, for someone to be interested in American fine printing, but also there is very little uh, analogous printing in Australia. The number of fine printers in that tradition in Australia, you could number probably on maybe two hands, if not one hand. Um, there were a few in the golden era of private presses in the, say, the 1920s, but they were mainly um, UK connected and ended up moving to London and there are a few in the 60s and 70s, um, all of them sort of living on living on a shoestring. Um, whereas in America, as you well know, that's been a very viable and vibrant field and crossing over occasionally into trade publishing with people like W.A. Dwiggins uh, and other sort of key typographers and, and designers, uh, you know, Nash and Rogers and others, um, really influencing mainstream book production. So that's, that's a very much an American phenomenon. We don't have that here, and we, we very much envy it. That's interesting. It's not something that uh, I admit I've ever considered, the Australian fine press movement, but I guess I would have assumed that you would have had one. Um, interestingly, the town I live in, I live in Lexington, Kentucky, and uh, which is not a large city, but you know, decent size. We have a University of Kentucky is here, so uh, we have another a small liberal arts college here. So there's sort of an, I guess, an, for the, our size, an outsized number of scholars and, and those sorts of things moving in and out of the city. But uh, the private press movement in Kentucky is is actually, has been particularly strong. And that was fed not so much with a connection to the UK, which is kind of typical, I think, of uh, sort of that cross-fertilization between the US and the UK. But uh, We've had more influence from Austria and mm. Germany uh, because uh, a, a typographer and uh, and printer named uh, Victor Hammer, who was Austrian, he designed the American Uncial typeface, which everyone has seen, whether they know it or not. But mm. it, it's a very uh, commonly used um, sort of decorative typeface, and uh, he fled Europe at the time of the war and ended up. At Transylvania uh, University, or at the time Transylvania College here in Lexington, and connected with kind of an amateur private press group, ended up uh, there was a lady who was at the University of Kentucky, and he ended up marrying her, and she had kind of a, a hobby private press group, and but he, of course, took that to you know a, a very high level, um, and then. Mm. He was friends with a um, a German illustrator named Fritz Cradle, who has done a lot of did a lot of sort of mid century children's books illustrations and that sort of thing. But he um, 
did a lot of uh, sort of engravings and line drawings and that kind of, that's that sort of thing. He ended up coming here too uh, for a, for a period of time. And so there's, it's sort of this odd connection. Uh, but, but as a result, there has been over the past few decades, kind of a flourishing in this area of, of private presses that, uh, that have looked more, I think, to that tradition maybe than to the UK tradition, um, which is, which is kind of interesting, um, I think, but, at any rate, uh, yeah, private presses are something that I've always had a great deal of interest in, and I, I do find it, I do find it intriguing that that Australia is just never really caught. It's never really caught on. Although we don't really have regional publishing houses either; uh, those are those are generally highly consolidated, of course, mm. in New York and so forth. Some to the degree that we do, they, they usually tend to be university based. Uh, publishing so so that's a way in which to some degree there's regional publishing but uh, a lot of the university presses are are kind of under fire these days too losing funding and not able to uh, to really maintain uh, the kind the level maybe that they did in the past uh, it's it's a place administrators like to cut budgets Yes, it's one of the first things that new vice chancellors look at <laughs> when they arrive. <laughs> like, Why are we exactly. subsidising this press? Yes, absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about about your book, the library. In in the preface to the library, um, you tell a story as a young man of finding a a book, sort of a fortuitous finding of a book at a library sale. Now, someone who has been to my fair share of library sales. Um, I've never found a book quite like this. So uh, tell us about that book and, and the importance of it. Well, yes, very much like you, I, I hunt around um, the rare book shops and also the sales and, and markets and things. And um, that particular sale, I was working at the University of Melbourne at the time. And it, was, it wasn't a widely advertised sale. And it was at one of the um, academic colleges uh, there. So the university proper, next to the university, there are a series of, of colleges, which are essentially residential places um, where, where people from outside the city can stay and, and, and do various things. And one of the uh, annexes to one of the chapels had a little book room uh, and had a book sale there. And so just by chance, I was one of the first people there opened the doors and I could see this book straight away like it was it was very different to all the others it was a, um, a quarto format um, a, a very standard uh, sort of um, 18th and, and early 19th century format um, in full Morocco with um, uh, double raised bands um, on the spine nicely uh, decorated in gilt very a very good quality binding the sort that you see at the Folger Shakespeare Library um, and, uh, and other, other fine collections. And so um, I broke some kind of band speed record uh, between the door and the, and the trestle <laughs> where this book was. Um, and um, I should say, I think it was priced at, at $3 and opened it up. And it, it uh, among other things, uh, it was anonymously um, published. So the, the author's name wasn't given only his uh, terminal initials and at the back of the book um, there was a as is reasonably common in in some 19th century books there was a a, a, um, a list of subscribers so showing the disposition of the copies and it named some of the key bibliophiles from the early part of 19th century so the book was published i think um, in 1812 i think from memory roughly um and um, so very, very quickly, I handed over my $3. And then this, <laughs> right. this, this, this book um, was suddenly the, the most valuable thing that I owned. Um, and it was, it was a little mystery. Uh, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know who the author was. I didn't know what the, the, um, the point of it was. Um, but I knew that it was fascinating and important. So the first question at home um, with my then girlfriend and now wife was what do we do with it? How do we look after it? Um, how do we put it in an archival box? Uh, is it okay to handle it? Um, 
and uh, all those sorts of questions. And so we bought archival uh, material. We, we did the white gloves thing for a while and then realized that the white gloves thing's a mistake. Um, and so we were still very, very careful with it. And, and the book is um, here with me now. It's about four meters away uh, in a 20 foot tall bookcase to my right. Um, and it opened up a, a, a world. This book was the most valuable thing that we owned. Uh, and it was a, a, a journey of, of discovery of, of what it was and, and where it came from. Um, and so it was a window into a whole series of different worlds. Um, the book was um, a, a, um, an edited set of um, essentially extracts from rare Elizabethan uh, poetry and ballads. Um, some of them um, judged to be um, a little bit too racy, uh, and some of them were some of them were censored, and some of them were printed in full. Um, but that's why it was published anonymously, and um, it was a real window into that world of early nineteenth-century bibliophilia and bibliomania, where people were redefining uh, what a rare book was, and and and. You know, opening up interest in early documents, including Elizabethan documents, um, and also the physical production of their own books was was sort of feeding the bibliomania. And so, this particular book was printed on blue paper. Um, it was one of uh, five or six specials uh, of that edition. I think the whole edition ran to about a hundred copies, um, and this particular one was one of five or six. And um, Again, it was feeding that uh, interest in very, very rare books and, and nicely produced books, etc. So um, that was a, a journey, and it ended up that um, we did some research in the um, the dictionary of anonymous and pseudonymous literature uh, and other resources like that. Um, the author turned out to be a chap called John Fry, who was a, an Elizabethan and a bookseller uh, in Bristol, uh, and he published a series of books um, in this vein, including a, a much larger one called Bibliographical Memoranda. Um, and um, I quickly bought a beautiful copy of that as well um, and uh, got to know more about John Fry and that world and, and the other you know, bibliophiles who were, as I said, creating the idea of, of a rare book at that time. So um, people talk about how finding an underpriced book and an especially important book can really change your life, um, and there are great stories of that. Uh, and I think it's true uh, because you, you, it changes the way you think about books you want more of them. You want to repeat the the feeling of finding them, and you want to discover more about them. So it really was a sort of a window and a way to communicate with someone who was you know who had died more than two hundred years ago. Um, so um, yeah, that's the story of that John Fry book. Just very very quickly with um, talking about private press and pulps, there's a really interesting sort of connection there that people don't sort of think about. Um, we talked about how. Um, Fine printed, finely printed books in America influenced a ma mainstream American publishing. Something similar happened in the UK that a lot of people don't think about. Um, with Penguin Books, um, which is the absolute quintessential pa um, paperback, they weren't very pulpy in the sense that they didn't have lurid covers, but they were certainly pulpy in their production uh, and in their uh, paper uh, and their bindings. But the people who founded Penguin had a background in fine printing and in um, in the um, limited editions world and um, fine typography. And then through the life of Penguin, uh, they engaged some of the best designers and typographers in the world um, to uh, design Penguin's typography, etc. So um, Penguin's a really good example of how the line between fine printing and pulp <laughs> pulp publishing right. uh, can be very fungible. Well, and, and an aside about Penguin, of course, you you have a book out about Penguin, <laughs> but mm. uh, what, we want, want to let folks be aware of that. But, you know, I, I think that the Penguin is an excellent example that a book doesn't have to be expensively produced to be uh, a a pleasing book yes. uh, that uh, that it is you know they're the right size they're they're just visually attractive they're they're well laid out um, and any any book can achieve that 
if they would like to. <laughs> that's a matter of that's a matter of care and effort, really, uh, of whether they're they're willing to to make the effort, expend the energy to look that way, regardless of you know, you're, you're not having to use a you know, handmade Japanese paper or something like that or a vellum cover. You can you can make an, an orange penguin paperback and still have it be a very elegant uh, piece of work, I think. Yes. Yes, what, what I try to do with my um, penguin book is very similar to what I try to do with the library book and the Shakespeare book to a degree, which is to give people an entree into a literature and a, and a bibliographical world that they wouldn't normally see and to really bring out the physicality of that and the strangeness and the all the sorts of different debates around paper and glue and all the disasters and the typographical problems that can happen and the mistakes that can happen in publishing, but also the, the, the texture of working in that world and the rivalries and the you know, the, the egos, um, the, the sort of the human side, the human side of bookmaking and the human side of book love, um, which is not something that's been foregrounded in bibliography uh, in the past. Uh, there's obviously exceptions, but as a field, um, it tended to be um, a bit more focused on the, the pedantry than the poetry, uh, if you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> right. So, so there's that aspect of those books. Um, and another another theme that, that links the Penguin book for me um, with the Shakespeare book, um, apart from that interest in the human side and the physicality of books and libraries and that kind of thing, um, both of them are myth-busting exercises uh, and both of them um, take aim at um, some pretty eminent and sacred uh, English uh, figures. So the, the Penguin book takes aim to, to a degree at Alan Lane and the idea of that Alan Lane was uh, the driver behind Penguin books and that he was a, sort of a literary genius and that kind of thing. And in some ways, the Shakespeare book takes aim at, at a similar concept of Shakespeare. Um, and uh, I'll tell you what, um, both of them, both books have been well received in Australia. Uh, both books have been well received in the US, um, but uh, it's fair to say that both of them are deeply annoying uh, to certain types of English people. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it sounds like you're, you're pushing the right buttons uh, on, <laughs> on that. I do want to talk a little bit about the Shakespeare book in a, in a moment, uh, because I think it, it is an interesting offshoot in a way uh, that not, not meant to sound like it's a uh, derivative, but just as a, as sort of an, a, a, an exploration um, of a lot of the issues I think that you bring up in the library. Uh, but, you know, you, you started off in the library talking about the issue of, of, does a library need to have books? And mm. I found that intriguing. D does a library need books? You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. Well, I deliberately start that book with um, a library that doesn't have books. It has texts, but not books. And that's the, um, the Library of Indigenous Stories in Australia. And, and that's a library that goes back tens of thousands of years. Uh, and is incredibly int intricate and has all sorts of rules around the preservation of texts and uh, who can who can remember and who can read texts and those sorts of things, um, but without books. So they did have some physical counterparts of stories, uh, some artefacts, uh, and the landscape itself was a physical counterpart to the stories, but fundamentally they were um, not physical um, and so um, a large part of what's happening in Australia at the moment is really interesting is the, the, the re-embracing uh, re um, by non-Indigenous people um, of uh, Indigenous languages um, and uh, Indigenous culture and properly restoring the place of that in Australia's history. Because, uh, you know, there's a version of Australia's history that says, oh, it all started in 1788 and all that. Um, but there's a very strong realisation now that the history goes back, <laughs> obviously, uh, a long way uh, earlier than that. Um, 
and the culture goes back a long way earlier than that. So um, this um, incredible library of Indigenous stories was preserved by you know, word of mouth and by all sorts of different conventions, as I said. Um, so I, I characterise that. I think I'm probably one of the first people who sort of grouped that um, body of literature and those stories um, as a library. Um, but um, you know, if you think of a library as an organised and curated collection of texts, then that's exactly what it was. And that's why um, we have access to it today, because it was curated carefully and, and passed down uh, through generations. So if, if, if you're comfortable with um, thinking about digital libraries, for example, and you're comfortable about thinking of aspects of the internet as a library, which are non-physical uh, or differently physical, um, then it's also true, I think, that you can think about um, storage of texts uh, in people's heads uh, and, and through those sorts of conventions and those sorts of rituals. Um, so uh, I think that's an interesting idea. One of the things I tried to do with that library book was to, to show interesting patterns and recurrences uh, in libraries over time and how the same sorts of things happen uh, with texts uh, and the same sorts of things, the same sorts of crimes happen uh, and the same sorts of um, disastrous people <laughs> enter the scene uh, and make the same sorts of mistakes <laughs> right. uh, in how they, how they think of uh, libraries or how they miscurate libraries or destroy libraries. Um, again, uh, the, the book was not um, a sort of a, a traditional bibliographical work in any sense. It was much more about the human side and the, um, the putting people at the centre of it and how libraries are actually lived and how texts are actually lived. So it's how you can sleep with your books and how you can you know, lust after a particular type of book that you have to have or um, the rivalries between libraries and the rivalries between people in how libraries are defined. And going back to the, the Australian Library, most of the early encounters um, between Indigenous people and um, anthropologists and um, um, you know, uh, linguists and others were pretty disastrous, uh, partly because the scientists brought uh, paradigms that weren't really relevant, uh, partly because a lot of them weren't very, really trained properly in any real discipline. They were more enthusiastic amateurs, and partly because it was in a context of um, you know, dispossession and, and um, um, all sorts of other terrible uh, abuses. Um, and therefore, you couldn't really have a, a proper conversation about culture uh, and about um, you know, curating those stories. So uh, not only do I position that library in the history of libraries, but I position it in the history of library destruction uh, and library um, miscuration. Uh, mis um, and obviously, that's very, very important. And since, since my book came out, there's been a few other uh, books that have really focused on um, the destruction of libraries in war um, and um, yeah, library fires and library thefts and, and those sorts of things. So um, there's been a bit of a shift uh, in, the, in the library conversation. And I think one reason why people uh, have foregrounded that is uh, because they're foregrounding the fragility of libraries you know we take these things uh, for granted um, but whether it's in digital format or memory format or physical format um, ultimately all of those uh, collections are vulnerable uh, and potentially temporary and at the risk of getting political um, you know at, at different times different sorts of governments and movements have really tried to um, stamp out aspects of libraries and, and destroy different kinds of books and, and, and suppress different kinds of literatures and different aspects of history. So um, as I said um, in a, uh, um, an academic le lecture recently, there's something inherently conservative about conservation um, and that we have an obligation uh, to properly and carefully preserve all of these texts. Uh, and that includes some of those um, oral and ancient ones. Well, I, I think that's absolutely right. I think that, that um, that's very much a, a conservative, rightly understood uh, enterprise. And, uh, you know, you, you talked about uh, if we're comfortable with digital libraries, then certainly we should be comfortable with those. In fact, I would, I would say I'm much more comfortable with the idea of an aboriginal oral library than I am mm. a digital library in a lot of ways. <laughs> yes. But they really do, um, you know, that's... It, 
in our modern digital age, those are um, this artifact of of the past of all humankind, really, because there was a time when the thing that you and I love so much, the book and the, the printed word, did not exist. And these things were passed down orally. And I think that a lot of times modern people fail to appreciate how good human beings can actually be at that. Because I think a lot of times mm. we, we tend to discount, uh, we, we discount people of the past and discount oral traditions when it, it's generally my, uh, my tendency to trust oral traditions a lot more than question them. That's not to say that, that uh, they should be given always be given complete trust, but neither should the written word, as as your books also show, uh, with forgeries and so forth. People have agendas, uh, regardless <laughs> of how how information is, is passed down. Yes, definitely. That, that dimension of forgery and fakery is really important. And that's a, a, another one of those cross-currents that appears again and again in the history of libraries uh, and in Shakespeare studies. Um, so um, one of the one of the ways I've sort of characterised physical libraries is as a, a, something like an analog blockchain, um, where it makes it more difficult to fabricate the historical record um, if we've got multiple uh, sites and multiple physical libraries, because this, during the digital um, changeover, uh, a lot of libraries. You talked about how you know, universities are always cutting costs and, and getting rid of university presses when they when they um, go into austerity. The same is true of, of university libraries and, and some other collections. And so when people were um, foregrounding digitalization, uh, they looked at collections of old newspapers and collections of old periodicals and maybe some kinds of reference books. And they say, well, we don't really need that because other people are going to keep it. And so we can just put that in the recycling. But the problem is that every other institution is making the same judgment. Right, uh, and, correct. And so, so the whole periodicals just don't, well, there may be one or two copies. Um, and so there are, there are movements of, of private uh, groups to just rent warehouse space uh, and to, to save these. Uh, and, and this is not just marginal literatures. It's not just zines and things or underground literatures. This is mainstream you know, periodicals from the 1930s or mainstream newspapers. Uh, and sooner or later, there was, there was on that trajectory, there was a risk that they just would not exist in physical form. Um, and as, as you know, um, the digital form is not permanent. Um, there's all sorts of things that can happen, including changing content. Um, but also with the physical side, there are things that you um, get from the text that you don't get from a purely digital scan or a digital version. So, um, yeah, there's, there's, um, there's definitely a, a, an extreme point that that sort of shift can go to. Um, and it's great that people are taking seriously the need to, to preserve and protect those texts. Right. I think we started really seeing libraries de-excess, as they, as they say, mm. various uh, books and, and um and especially periodicals uh, that, in their view, no one had any interest in. I mean, I uh, I have a friend who's a used uh, used and rare bookstore owner uh, here in Kentucky who who was telling me a horror story of a of a, uh, a university library in in the area. He he did not identify it to me, but but that they were that they had just gotten rid of literally thousands of books and uh, and dumped them in a, in a landfill because they didn't want the negative press of getting rid of the books. So, mm. so that was just like a, that was just, just a horror story uh, playing out there. And uh, you know, what, who knows what, what was lost there? I mean, and, and uh well, well, let's just, we should just sort of pause and, and put an underline on what you just said. Uh, and, and this can be a message from this podcast to all university libraries and like university librarians and university administrators out there, which is if you feel like getting rid of some books, 
and you're worried that people will be um, critical of that, then taking it to the next level and doing it in bulk, in secret, isn't a solution. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Ma making it worse doesn't make it better. And um, <laughs> um, I, I, I do feel like at times, um, and I know that this is an unfair characterization, but sometimes I have felt like that um, librarians, at least certain librarians, uh, can be... Uh, one of the biggest enemies that the book can have, and I know that many of them are very devoted to them, but uh, sometimes that sometimes that uh, that vibe, at least, is given off, mm. I guess, uh, and perhaps perhaps uh, unfairly or fairly. But nonetheless, uh, I, I do think it is important that um, that we save things, and it's it's one of the valuable. I think one of the valuable things about private libraries, as you were saying, having these things also in 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 different sites, I mean, that you're you're decentralizing the information. And while centralized libraries like uh, the British Library or the Library of Congress, or even a, a specialized library like the Folger Library, I think those are ex obviously extraordinarily valuable. At the same time, I think. You, you having a stash of American fine press uh, ephemera and so forth in Australia is an extremely wonderful thing because who knows, you may have the only copy of something <laughs> and uh, or one of mm. two copies and, and that they're, they're spread apart and, and in that way, the odds of it surviving are greater and that at some point, uh, if needed, uh, it can surface to uh, to find to find its need. So, I think private presses or private presses, private libraries rather, serve um, a valuable social function in that way, because yes. we can uh, we we are sort of doing our little part, whatever that may be, of pursuing our own interests. And uh, a, a lot of us have difficulty. I, we'll, I'll bring up that word again, de-accessing our own things that we've picked up here and there that, uh, well, maybe I should hold on to that. There, there is a, uh, you know, there is the dark path of the hoarder, but there's also, uh, <laughs> there's also some, some benefit to, uh, for people holding on, uh, to that sort of thing. Actually, th that, that kind of triggered in my mind, a, a, a story that you talk about in your, your Shakespeare book, um, uh, about uh, a fellow who was who was in search of uh, of Shakespeare's library, and uh, of course that that is one of I guess the the most sought for is as your book talks about the most sought for uh, private library that has not been found at least at this point, uh, and that that's the story of uh, of the gentleman who was who was. Uh, just a little bit too late, or at least the story went, uh, <laughs> in finding this uh, this great horde of Shakespeare papers. And uh, you know, don't mind sharing uh, sharing that story. I believe Samuel was it Samuel Ireland? Is that uh, yes. is that the the name of the gentleman? Yes. Well, you you touched on this earlier about routes to madness, and uh, definitely the search for Shakespeare's library is one of those routes to madness. Um, and yeah, the Ireland family uh, in the 18th century, they were some of the earliest uh, searchers for the library. Uh, they were um, bibliophiles and art collectors and, and uh, amateur writers and publishers. Uh, and they went to um, Shakespeare's hometown, Stratford-upon-Avon, and asked around, um, did anyone have any papers or books or other artefacts relating to Shakespeare and his time? And they had a bit of a kind of local guy who was a sort of amateur tour guide taking them around. Uh, and they show up at this farmhouse on the edge of town. Um, and um, and the, far the farmer sort of says, oh, yeah, I, I did actually have some, um, some documents. Uh, there was a bundle of, of early uh, letters and manuscripts. They were bu bundled up and wrapped in paper with string around them. And they had... Uh, William Shakespeare's name on them, um, and uh, only a little while ago, I um, I had to burn them uh, to make room for um, uh, some partridges uh, that I wanted to raise, 
um, and uh, made a raging bonfire of those papers. And uh, his wife at that moment chimes in, the farmer's wife, and says, I told you not to burn those papers. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And um, that's the bad news. The good news is um, that, first of all, pretty much every person involved in that conversation is a hoaxer. The, um, the farmer was just having a bit of fun with these sort of nosy antiquarians uh, from London. Um, and the, the antiquarians themselves, after this disappointment, they go back to London and um, perpetrate the largest uh, Shakespearean fraud uh, of that era. Uh, so creating, uh, well, adding false provenance to um, early printed books, false Shakespearean provenance creating fake um, uh, letters of Shakespearean interest and other documents um, and even artwork and crests and all sorts of things. So, um, yeah, going back to that point around sort of uh, Shakespearean, sorry, library disasters and library thefts and library forgeries, that the Ireland family were were up there. And, um, you know, people wanted to believe that it was real and so quite credible people, I think including the Prince of Wales uh, at the time, and some um, major um, literary figures took all of the the um, so-called discoveries at face value, um, and you know they were a sensation for a while. And then one or two uh, serious uh, bibliographers uh, and um, people with a more scientific approach asked a few <laughs> questions uh, and looked a little bit at the language uh, and other evidence, and and um, yeah, the whole thing sort of unravelled. But um, sort of understanding the, the idea of libraries and, and uh, authorship and, and um, book love and book collecting in Shakespeare's time is really interesting because a lot of what we've talked about, about what you and I've touched on in terms of authorship and um, book collecting and how people saw early documents and how they valued books is really not relevant to, um, to Shakespeare's lifetime. Um, and so a lot of the, um, uh, the energy in Shakespeare heresy uh, really comes from uh, an anachronism. It comes from two anachronistic ideas. Uh, one, a, a false idea of authorship, uh, a sort of a modern idea of authorship being imposed on um, uh, 16th and 17th century authorship, but also a modern idea of the value of books and the value of documents. Um, there were book collectors, private book collectors in Shakespeare's time, but the, the full, full-blown um, bibliomania and the full sort of field of book collecting and, and um, yeah, book, book loving really didn't um, arise until the latter part of the 18th century and the early part of the 19th century where you had you know, the, some of the people we talked about, like the, the Thomas Frognall Dibden and some of the bibliophile societies and those sorts of things. So there were significant private collections, as I said, and there were significant aristocratic uh, collections. But fundamentally, the idea of um, what constituted a rare book um, and what constituted a valuable book and whether you'd want to keep certain types of documents, that's much more a modern idea than a a sort of pre-modern or early modern idea. You mentioned sort of the the way of madness. Uh, one of the things <laughs> that that was that was a little bit uh, you know a little bit sad uh, for for me in the year twenty twenty one was was reading how relatively late uh, sort of a determined bibliophile could actually acquire a first folio if they <laughs> they set their mind to it. I mean, a hundred years ago. You still might have been able to pull it off, a, nor- a normal person uh, who, without uh, foundation money behind you or something. Yes. Well, I mean, I have a sort of ambivalent attitude towards the first folio. Um, obviously, a fascinating and important book. Um, and if someone offered me uh, a copy, I wouldn't say no. Um, <laughs> but in some ways it's been a, a, a masterpiece of, of marketing um, now, um, and, and, you know, the sort of an example of the star phenomenon um, of the 20th century and perhaps earlier. So obviously the first folio isn't uh, the first publication of Shakespeare's plays, first of all, um, because there are a lot of quarto editions. It's not the first collected uh, edition of, of some of Shakespeare's plays. Um, it was 
published well and truly uh, posthumously um, in, in, um, and published by a, a publisher who had a, a, um, a track record of, of um, fraudulent and, um, and disreputable uh, publishing. Um, the details of its publication are very <laughs> sketchy <laughs> and, and the book itself, um, it, it has all the trappings of being a, um, you know, a serious work of scholarship and, and a serious work of book production. But editorially uh, and uh, typographically, um, it's full of errors. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think my, one of my sort of meta uh, points in the, um, in the Shakespeare book, uh, a lot of the heretical scholars, or so-called scholars, heretical um, people um, in Shakespeare studies um, have really focused on the idea of authorship and Shakespearean authorship and Shakespearean biography, and I think that was a mistake. But if they had to focus their efforts on the first folio and thought about how some of those plays ended up in the first folio uh, <laughs> and where they came from, um, I think they probably would have made a lot more progress. Um, so, again, that's, that's a double-edged sword because um, from a purely uh, textual and scholarly point of view, um, the first folio is an unreliable source. But from a, from, if you're interested in mysteries and you're interested in bibliography, then those shortcomings are themselves uh, fascinating and, and attractive as well. Um, so uh, they're just another layer in, in a whole bunch of different kinds of um, juicy Shakespearean stories. Well, I want to particularly point people to your book, The Library, A Catalogue of Wonders. Uh, it is... Um... It is. It's fascinating all the, the the various twists and turns you take. As as is, you're more focused on a single library, the Shakespeare's Library, uh, and uh, also uh, it, it it is, I guess, amazing all of the the stories and twists and turns that have that have revolved around that. So those are uh, very much uh, worth looking at for uh, for those listening. And, and I want to I want to end with a, with two questions for you. The first is, do you think anything from Shakespeare's library is actually ever findable? Absolutely, I do. Um so we're only really starting to scratch the surface. There's been some very interesting discoveries made recently. Um, the internet uh, and Twitter and um, databases uh, are really changing um, the way uh, that we look at early books. Um, there's a whole field of recovering um, washed away signatures and, and other evidence of provenance. Uh, there's a whole um, field of uh, fragmentology, of, of looking at fragments of texts and pieces of paper that are used in other bindings and other places. Um, so there's a whole frontier of, of understudied and undiscovered uh, work. And a lot of the early quarto plays, as you know, were quite short. They were you know, pamphlets of you know, 30 pages or something. Um, and they were all bound together, bound with other books. Um, so um, there's all sorts of private libraries and aristocratic libraries that haven't been, or even institutional libraries, that haven't been fully studied and fully catalogued. Um, and as I said, there's evidence that's, that's appearing. Uh, so one of the reasons I wrote the Shakespeare book was to really prompt people to say, well, actually, these books are still out there. Um, and um, a lot of the evidence is still out there. So yes, I, I do think uh, there are going to be more um, important uh, Shakespearean discoveries, definitely. And the second question is, sort of going back to the, your library book, what library, past or present, would you like to visit? <laughs> mm. Well, I've, I've visited most of the really, really good ones in the present. Um, I did a, 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 sort of a world tour of libraries um, in 2018, I think it was, with my um, wife and two children. Uh, and we did. Uh, we, we hit most of the high notes, uh, certainly in in, um, in England and the US, and, and some in Europe. Um, there's a few um, others in in uh, Italy and Spain I'd like to go to. But we we visited some very important libraries in Switzerland and other places. Um, the Library of Alexandria 
um, is you know, the, the, the ancient library of Alexandria uh, is a really interesting um, idea uh, about um, libraries and conservation. Um, as you know, it was a scroll library, so it predated uh, the, the codex format mostly. Um, and um, so papyrus scrolls, libraries of papyrus scrolls are extremely hard to maintain. So it was a very um, ephemeral library uh, in a river delta uh, uh, in, in not a great climate for books. So um, it was a, a huge exercise in uh, preservation and conservation. Um, and despite those efforts, all sorts of classical texts uh, were lost, uh, either through just um, you know, neglect and, and degradation or through fires and other sorts of things, plunder. So, um, yeah, I think any library person, uh, if, if you were to choose any library in history, <laughs> I think it would have to be that one. Al uh, Alexandria is where I, I was intrigued by... Uh, by their, uh, as you were termed with their aggressive collection methods um, mm. with ships and so <laughs> forth that would come to come to port, uh, where they would, uh, if a ship came to port that had scrolls, they would seize the scrolls, copy them, and then give them the copies back. Yes, that's right. That's right. There's no point in having power if you don't use it. <laughs> well, that's right. That's right. And and then they lost the library anyway. So mm. alas. <laughs> yes, well, obviously, a lot of the texts did turn up in other places and some of the copies and kinds of things. And um, just quickly on Alexandria, um, continuing the theme of book fraud and and, um, and shady schemes, um, because they were so voracious in their in their acquisition um, policies, um, entrepreneurs learnt this, and they knew that if you could do sort of create um, you know um, plausible sounding classical works that were actually fabrications you could sell them to the library. Um, so there was a whole sort of um, ancillary industry of, of production of um, bogus uh, classical texts. And it took literally hundreds of years uh, to work out which ones of those were real and which ones were, um, were fraudulent. Um, there's a wonderful moment in that terrific uh, Nicolas Cage and Diane Kruger movie, National Treasure, where they finally oh, yes. find the, the Templar a treasure. classic. <laughs> they find, and they finally find the treasure. And the first thing, one of the first things that they find is a set of scrolls from the Library of Alexandria. <laughs> it's, a, it's a perfect bibliophile moment. That's a, absolutely, absolutely. Well, on that note, uh, Stuart Kells, we'll, we'll end because I think that you and I could keep going uh, <laughs> until until another tomorrow or so on, on these topics. Perhaps we can, uh, we can find a time in the future to talk about some other bookish things, but I very much appreciate your time and, uh, and chatting uh, about all these things that I love to talk about but don't get a chance to talk about nearly as much as I would like to. Fantastic, Alan. I really enjoyed uh, having a chat. And uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to, to speak again, definitely. Well, thanks for coming on. And uh, I, I hope all is well for Australia soon. It's nowhere near as bad as what you're seeing in the media. <laughs> well, thanks for being with us. Brilliant. Take care.